Greetings from the Cosmic Horrors. The stars are right once again, and the great old ones are allowing us to talk about for 30 minutes H.P. Lovecraft, the horror writer who's a genre unto himself. I am your cosmic host, Mark Griffin, executor of the Lovecraft Estate on Yagoth. Joined in by two from the material world, David Guppy, a professor at Miss Platonic University, and Richard Wilson, who has currently been ostracized by the Lovecraft community when he attempted to pawn the silver key. We will continue exploring Lovecraft's fascination of 1001 Nights, aka Arabian Nights. As you may remember, Lovecraft as a child named himself Abu Hazared, we reenacting the world of his cherished book. Abu Hazared and his Necronomicon are a constant present in Lovecraft's writings. It's harder to think of a story where they appear than where they don't. From Dreams in the Witch House to At the Mountains of Madness, at least some passing reference has been made to the Muslim elucidator of Lovecraft's universe. According to Ian Amon, a professor of world literature at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in Qatar, in his essay on the darker Islam within the American Gothic, Sufi motifs in the stories of H.P. Lovecraft, Amon continued, the Arab's Necronomicon is a urtext, which lies at the heart of Lovecraft's fictitious universe. One passage from the forbidden book is uttered in through the gates of the Silver Key, which drew Amon's attention because it echoes Sufism. Sufism, a form of Islamic mysticism that extremists regard as heresy and have targeted believers for terroristic attacks. Sufism is where we get whirling dervish from, and one of the most famous devotees is Rumi, the 13th century Iranian jurist remembered today for his love poems. In Sufism, God has so many veils of lights and darkness to prevent humans from destroying themselves as they see him, which parallels how people in Lovecraft's world go mad when they learn of the truth of cosmic horrors. One of the few to weather these cosmic horrors is Randolph Carter, a rare reoccurring character in Lovecraft's world and the explorer in Through the Gates of the Silver Key, written in collaboration with E. Hoffman Price in, back in 1932. In the story, Lovecraft's, excuse me, Carter's body is destroyed. His self has been annihilated, to be exact, but that is not as bad as it sounds. Carter's quest for the ultimate mystery, quoting Amon, his desire to draw back the final veil leads him to an anguishing discovery that his Carterness has been nothing more than an illusion, a trick, a dream all alone. A passage offers a rather mystical moment. Carter discovers that he is part of the universe and the universe is part of him. There are also some interesting political implications in Lovecraft's repeated political emphasis on the horror of losing one's Bostonian Anglo-Saxon identity. For a writer is convinced of racially structured hierarchies as Lovecraft, the idea of being no longer a defiant being distinguished from one's beings clearly skirts close to unspeakable. Carter, as a result of this process, gains a new body, and he makes a cameo visiting a museum in another story. Sufism contains beliefs in fauna, annihilation of self, and Hayon illusion. In Sufism, the soul carries with it a secret, a secret of its divinity, of its heavenly origins. This secret is cloaked by God under the guise of selfhood. God prevents self, uh, the real, prevents the real secret from being known, namely that he is the essential self of all things. He conceals it by otherness, which is in effect, God is the secret of the self, a secret that many unenlightened souls go through their whole lives without discovering, without, according to Amon. The Lovecraftian prophet Robert Price echoed a similar thought in his essay on the author's beliefs. Price expressed, expressed how another character, Charles Dexter Ward, could not survive his quest into the unknown because it was beyond his capacity to deal with. Randolph Carter survived because he was better prepared 
had better friends and family and cats on his side. While these actions could be taken as a religious experience, that would be a faulty assumption. Lovecraft was a non-believer. What Randolph Carter had sought is his lost boyhood, which was had never ceased to mourn. Excuse me. He had sought is his lost boyhood, which he had never, never ceased to mourn. Basically, Lovecraft saw the Arab spear as one of the happiest moments of his childhood and wanted to return to the magical world of his, in his works. With the exception of Aladdin and Genies, the Arabian Nights doesn't hold the fascination over American children as once before. 9-11 may, may play a role in that. David Hamblin, a modern South London writer, has been fascinated by Lovecraft's interest in Arabian Nights and started a series of stories centering on an ex-boxer named Harry Stubbs. The first novella, Elder Ice, despite the plot involving the death of a polar explorer, has a mystery which key to the enigma lies in the ancient Arabian book, leading to something more alien, more horrifying than Harry could ever imagine. Steve on Goodreads gave it a meh. I wanted to like this one since I'm a big fan of Lovecraft's Mountains of Madness, but it just never gelled with me. It's too bad because Hamlin can write. The prose is smooth and the two infrequent horrors are pretty good. The main character has a two-fisted Victor McClanahan charm, but in the end, that's just not enough since everything just seems so Baker Street in tone, which doesn't actually fit with the post-World War I timing of the story. For now, our night with 1001 nights will have to end because the great old ones have, are curious and want something free to answer for them, Richard and David. What example of cosmic horrors have existed since Lovecraft has ascended from the earth? Turn it over to you now. Last night's debate is one. I'm sorry, what was that? I just said the, the debate last night was definitely a cosmic horror. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Okay, well, uh, I can't argue with that, but anything else? Um, if we're talking about uh, stories and authors uh, that have been influenced um, into the writing of the cosmic horror genre for saying that Lovecraft was, say, the uh, creator, if you want to go that far, uh, that particular genre, you've got uh, a large number of different authors to kind of to choose from that uh, some are more overt, uh, really writing within, the, say, the Cthulhu mythos, and then some as far as you know, coming up with their own stories that are just more heavily influenced by them. Uh, I'd say as far as Brian, Brian Lumley is a good example because initially he started out um, writing in the Cthulhu mythos with the Titus Crow um, stories, but then the Necroscope and the other things that he's done have kind of become doing his own thing. Uh, Thomas Ligotti, uh, another good one as far as gives you that real sense of that kind of um, that cosmic horror and that uh, existential dread, you know, that you get from Lovecraft stories from Songs of a Dead Dreamer. Uh, and the conspiracy against the human race, uh, some other stories like that. Um, one's a little more topical, I guess, for we're talking about adaptations and that type of thing that are uh, current, the uh, lock and key uh, that's on Netflix, uh, uh, Stephen King's son, Joe Hill. Um, that's very, that series very, very heavily uh, Lovecraftian influenced, uh, both in tone and even in title, with its original uh, initial story arc being Welcome to Lovecraft. <laughs> And then the villains of the piece being very much, you know, Lovecraftian entities that are trying to influence our worlds uh, through various totems and worshipers, that kind of thing. Uh, you got anything, David? Besides uh, the debate? 
Well, I'm trying. I'm, I'm looking up the guy's name. I can't think of the name. Okay. Peter Klein's. Um, oh, yeah. Called uh, 14. Um, and the other one I think is called The Fold or The Line. It's like a fold. The Fold, is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. You don't really see the Lovecraftian influence until you get way, way into the into the novel, but they, they crop up there towards the end and there's a lot of it, it's pretty it's pretty interesting stuff and it's uh it's well written. And I, I definitely agree with uh, Richard on Ligotti and Lumley. I read some of the um, uh, Titus Pro books way back. I can barely remember them. It's been a long time. Um, but that's that's what I. Uh, Peter Klein's is actually he's continuing that. I think the fourteen and then the fold were part of a series called Threshold okay. that are all loosely set in the same quasi Lovecraftian universe. And there've been there's another book in that series. Uh, I'm not sure what the, the title of it was, but I enjoyed both of those enough that I was like, I wonder what else he's done. And then uh, saw that that was part of an ongoing series that I believe it's are meant to be and set in the same universe, if not necessarily and directly interconnected. Um, there's also uh, John dies at the end. Uh, there's a little series of books there. Um, one of them is this book is full of spiders. John dies at the end, and um, I can't remember the, if there's a, what the other one is called. <clears throat> but that's that, that John dies at the end was actually made into a movie. It's a fairly entertaining movie as well, as far as see, it wasn't as formulaic as you kind of would think going into it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's on Hoopla, so library users can watch it for free. I think it, it until recently it was on Netflix. It, it may still be on Netflix or Prime. Yeah, so I Definitely. see Princess Cthulhu's making an appearance. She is. Yeah, is and that a cat? Is that a cat you're holding, Princess? Oh, yeah. It, Lovecraft would approve. Yes. Ah, he's vicious. He's scared. He's a scaredy cat. Scaredy cat. Scaredy cat. I guess one of the cosmic horror stories I thought about was like actually something that's based on true events. It was the Chernobyl miniseries that was on HBO. Okay. Uh, oh yeah, very very much so. Definitely the first four or five episodes were just they were kind of gut-wrenching and then you had to think well, this is all true this really happened so yeah you know the the way the the radiation affected those people had a very you know cosmic horror effect to them you know that definitely. had repercussions you know on you know it was just a it was a definitely very haunting story to watch movie to watch and uh neil gaiman is a has written a few like you know lovecrafting stories and uh, one of them, the study of Emerald, was kind of like a um, cross between um, Sherlock Holmes and um, Lovecraft. And um, it was later made into a board game. Hmm. I didn't know it was made into a board game. I think we talked about that, though. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of them. Um, and then uh, we've met we've met him before, uh, David. Joe Lansdale has done a yep. few like um, Lovecraftian things. Um, he. Uh, he did a, a sequel to Dumbwich Horror, which is done to a graphic novel. And then um, and then he did something that was in the Bleeding Shadows collection. It's about a blues musician who struck a serious Falsonian tone, they called it. And um, it's supposed to be very Lovecraftian, they say. I haven't read that one, so I don't know. 
It's interesting how much of this far as that if someone's tagged with that label, then I'll be kind of interested in checking out something by them. I started reading a book called The Fisherman uh, by John Langan, uh, who hadn't read any of his stuff before. Um, but as far as that was kind of uh, listed as, or I guess it's put out there as being very Lovecraftian influenced, and that hasn't really shown its hand yet. Um, as far as in the story goes, it's very kind of uh, very much set in, a, uh, in just our modern everyday world. But I guess as far as they're just kind of setting the table for whatever those elements are that he's planning on introducing into it. So is it going to be like a, how far are you into the story? I mean, is it like a short story? Is it a novel? No, it's a full novel, but I'm only about two chapters into it. Uh, so they're just kind of setting the stage for your two protagonists who then presumably encounter whatever they're going to encounter. <laughs> Uh, since the, even the, the uh, summaries of it are kind of vague on that matter as far as that's concerned. But I kind of, I like that going into it as opposed to having too much spelled out in advance. The, uh, they say that Stephen King has a few Lovecraftian influences in his um, stories, uh, particularly like the Dark Tower series. And um, True. some people say that like, you know, like it, and it was, and, and also Randall Flagg uh, had very like Lovecraftian, like almost like, antagonists you know they could be like villains from his universe right well even like the langoliers that you could even you know leave that as far as you know tag that as being lovecraftian and as much as say this kind of beyond your comprehension you know type of cosmic uh force is what's uh, going to affect the people in the plane unless they're able to get out of uh the situation that they're in these things that they're you know are beyond their comprehension and unable to understand mm -hmm. and uh, he did write one story about pan which would have more to do with um, uh, Lovecraft's influence. Uh, Arthur Meachin uh, wrote a novel about Pan. And um, Pan, I've read that one. Yeah, that was um, that was uh, the short story Lawnmower Man. That has nothing absolutely to do with the movie. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> the two have nothing to do with that, the other, except for the fact I think there was a lawnmower in both of them. Right. All that. And uh, the great old ones are in debate. They've overheard discussion between two mortals over how to pronounce a particular town in Lovecraft's New England. Uh, one citizen of this town is Wilbert Watley, who sought forbidden knowledge from the Necronomicon. This town is spelled D-U-N-W-I-C-H. How do you pronounce that town? Dunwich. Yeah. Do you have any other? You're Was there a second? Was there a secondary spelling that I guess I've not heard before? Or not spelling, but pronunciation that I'm not familiar with? Well, the, um, or, or it was up for debate as far as, you know, if well, it's the, spelled or pronounced this way or that way? The English pronounce it Dunitch. Oh, I see. We, okay. Yes. And so there's, that, our, there's our competing pronunciation. Yeah. So, you know, uh, there are other variations, Dunitch or Dunvitch. Um, the movie that came out, they pronounced it as Dunwich. It was done in the 70s and there are a lot of people who like were arguing over this and um and they pointed to like um uh greenwich you know saying that you know you pronounce it greenwich not greenwich i get that okay i could see that uh that perspective on it. uh but there's also the argument going there's also darby uh you know the people um i would say uh people in connecticut don't you know there's derby that's not pronounced as darby in connecticut mm -hmm. And so, uh, 
a lot of people don't know. I did find one person who gave like a really interesting argument. It says like, it's done which, because this is how I pronounced it when I first read it, when I was 11 years old. I'm not so wrong, it's so much I'm nostalgic. How did they pronounce so, it in the movie? Uh, in the movie, it was Dunwich. Okay. And um, uh, there's also another town uh, that's pronounced differently by people in Elder Gods. Um, it's populated by fish-like fish -like inhabitants and is spelled I-N-N-S-M-O-U-T-H. This fishing village first appeared in many stories with Lovecraft, such as Shadow Over Blank. How do you pronounce it? <laughs> you got any? How do you think it's pronounced? Huh? It ends my sorry. Yeah. yeah, that's what I would have assumed as well. Yeah, or right. I can see how there would be, you know, you would hit different vowels and consonant in it depending on, uh, again, your particular accent or your regionality or that kind of thing. But I didn't know it was that hotly contested as far as uh, how to pronounce it was concerned. Well, uh, that was not just because it's so slight. Uh, right. But, uh, uh, but uh, while Lovecraft didn't give us any guidance on how to say those towns' names, he did write down and pronounce the name of his most famous cosmic entity, C-T-H-U-L-H-U, -H -U, as in call of blank. Um, how do you pronounce that name? I've always gone with Cthulhu, but I've heard the harder, you know, Cthulhu as being, you know, quote unquote, also acceptable. <laughs> so there we go. I just like Cthulhu better. Yeah. Uh, there's also uh, a little too, you know, Cthulhu doesn't sound mean enough. I'll just be honest with you. Yeah, there is. It's not a, an aggressive enough name. There is an apocryphal tale that goes that David Wandry, who was a member of Lovecraft's circle, met up with the author and praised his short story called a blank. Uh, when Lovecraft corrected him, Lovecraft enlightened me that on its correct pronunciation, which sounded like a series of witches' whistles, I asked Lovecraft how he possibly could pronounce the name differently from the version of it which I correct, which I correct, pronounced phonetically. He then said to me, look here, I ought to know how to say it, don't you think? Uh, this account ran in the May 1934 edition of Fantasy Manic Manis Ma Magazine. Lovecraft denied this happened, and Wandry stated his remarks had been garbled. It did provoke Lovecraft to write about it. He explained in a July 23, 1934 letter to Dwayne Ramel that the spelling and pronunciations don't match because it is a fumbling human tempting to catch the phonetics of an absolutely non-human word. The name of a hellish entity was invented by beings whose vocal organs were not like man's, hence it has no relation to the human speech equipment. The syllables were determined by physiological equipment wholly unlike ours, hence could never be uttered perfectly by human throats. The actual sound is nearly as any human organs could imitate or any human letters recorded, may be taken as something like Kalalu, with the first syllable pronounced gutturally and very thickly. The U is about like that in full, with the first syllable not unlike Kalu in the sound, hence the H represents guttural thickness. Up to this time in the story, when Professor Angel became interested in the matter, there had never been any attempt to render the name of the hellish Ryland monster in our alphabet. Adu Abu Hazared made an attempt at Arabic letters, which was repeated in Greek by the Byzantine translator. The letters C-T-H-U-L-H-U -H were merely what Professor Angel hastily devised to represent, roughly and imperfectly of course, the dream name orally mouthed to him by the young artist Wilcock. 
So Kalalu is how we're supposed to pronounce it, but like a speed metal band, something like Kalalu, you know, something like that. Uh, other variations of, of his name go Tulu, as in the mound, Klulu in the winged death, and Kalalu Tiel in the electric executioner. So there you go. You have all these different ways you can say, you know, Kalalu. You know. It was, it was not meant for our uh, vocal cords to process, and that's why there's such debate over it. Yeah, you know, we, we, we need better organs, you know, for the order to say it. I'm pretty set in my ways on that one, just to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> it falls into that uh, whole category of uh, various words from sci-fi and fantasy novels that you never hear spoken aloud, so you have your own the way that you, you know we, when you read them the first time the way you would pronounce it and then you go you may go decades without hearing another person ever try and say it out loud and then hear it and no 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 that's not the way that i've ever heard it. the way that i pronounce that word um rob botine the, the makeup guy the horror makeup guy i mean when i was a kid that was botton rob botton i mean what kind of name is that but it was years later that i heard it was rob botine so yeah, you, you just have that sort of thing that happens when you're younger or, or even the old, older, I guess, if you have nothing to compare it to. Of course, we have the internet now, so we can look those things up if we really want. Right, exactly. Yeah, a, 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 <laughs> literally type in, how do you pronounce Cthulhu? Yeah. yeah, and of course you can't find a good to, you know, consensus and everybody how things are supposed to be, but you know, Lovecraft did put, you know, in the letter stating how he said it should be pronounced, but no one pronounces it that way. Most of the time you see it, you know, spelled just like, um, I mean, pronounced, you know, how it's commonly, you know, you hear it. And how was it pronounced in the South Park episode? There, God, it's been ages since I've seen that episode. I uh, need to watch those. <clears throat> There's a whole trilogy. Those are some classics there. And um, so we got a little bit of time left. Uh, what, what books would you recommend people um, to read? Um, just who've never read Lovecraft before, what would be the first book you recommend for them to read? Or story, I should say. I'd probably go with the uh, uh, Out the Mountains of Madness, I guess, is the, you know, like an opener is, or something along those, uh, you know, your introductory, uh, if you wanted to go that route, um, as far as that's concerned. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely up there. I think the top three for me would be the Shadow of Ransmouth, the Dunwich Horror, and, and the, At the Mountains of Madness. And At the Mountains the of Madness. Yeah. The popularity of Color Out of Space probably would lead it to, you know, where people are familiar with it and this as it would be an easy sell for somebody who'd never read it before because, oh, so many movies or this and that's, you know, been made from it. So, uh, as well as the fact, again, that it's kind of easy to wrap your head around versus something that needs, has a lot of, um, elements to it that you might not be familiar with or need to have read a previous story to understand that kind of thing. Um, the first Lovecraft story I read was um, out of the, uh, the best of the blessed of the blood clearing tales of Lovecraft and there was the rats in the walls. And um, it was, um, I guess it, it was good enough for me, you know, they decided to read on and read the rest of the stories in there. So it did, it did stick with me. Um, probably my favorite story of his would be shot over Innsmouth or Innsmouth. And um, so, you know, that was definitely the one situation. I want the creepiest, I think. 
What was that? Uh, Dreams in the Witch House is one of the creepiest, I think. And um, I'm, I'm trying to remember, there was one story, you know, where uh, the scene always stuck with me, where this one person had their face, uh, had their head sticking out of a window, and they were still talking to him and all that. And then one day, in one moment, they realized that his head was no longer there. And I can, I can never remember what story they came from. Maybe you haven't been able to remember what the title was or go back and figure it out? No, I hadn't, you know, so I've been, I've been, uh, I've been rereading the stories, but I haven't come across that passage yet. There's one called um, the Gable Window. I mean, I don't know that that's it, but it's it's very. It sounds sort of like maybe that could be it. I'll look at it and see. Check out and um, but I think that's. It's like Call of Cthulhu would probably be a good one since it's kind of like you know first kicks off the. Um, oh yeah, windows. yeah, that's yeah, that's true. I don't want to leave that one out. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure I would introduce somebody to Mountain of Madness just yet, because since it's such a long story, and it seems like you almost have to be familiar with Cthulhu Mythos before, you know, you know, delving to really appreciate that one. Because, you know, it's like, because um, go, he goes deep into, like, you know, a lot of about, like, you know, the, um, the old gods and, you know, and their universe and all that. Well, that's more, I guess, yeah, say 10, 15 years ago, that wouldn't have been his household name as it seems to be today, whereas even people who haven't read anything have seen it seep into, you know, so many other, uh, you know, whether it be comic books or movies or TV shows or video games or other novels, anything along those lines. Be like, oh, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar, you know, with all that, you know, the the tentacle guy, you know, that kind of, <laughs> as far as that's concerned. Yeah, I guess of all the cartoons out now, with like with Cthulhu, that it's um, or even just on yeah internet culture, yeah, with like on yeah. memes and that kind of thing. As far as even you know, people being familiar with it just through uh, that aspect, you know, of popular culture is concerned. Mm -hmm. Last week, who was it that that sent out the um, the Lovecraft sex shop and the booty called Cthulhu? No. Yeah, that was. I'm surprised I'd never heard, yeah, of the, uh, the Lovecraft erotica store before. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised it doesn't come up sooner. You know, it seemed like this should have been something that been around for quite some time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, well, David Richard, I see the stars are no longer right. We must cease all discussion until they are aligned again next month. 30 Minutes of H.P. Lovecraft is sponsored by Hook on, Hooked on Caphonics, where you need to utter that incantation just right. It was created in association with LovecraftPod.com, the Logan Speculative Fiction Group, with the help of Logan County Public Library, the Lovecraft Eternal Facebook page, the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, and the Great Old Ones. Special thanks to Katie Tyson and Joshua Dukes for their assistance. Until we meet again, may you avoid the wrath of Princess Cthulhu, or should I say, Kalalu. Mm -hmm.